You may be seated. So if you have your Bible with you today, would you um, turn with me to the book of Zechariah, chapter 8. Now, most of you, I suppose, probably can't find Zechariah because it's not that it's in that part of your Bible, as my pastor in South Carolina used to say, where the pages still stick together. <laughs> but it's printed there on page 9 in your bulletin, so despair not if you can't find it. Um, Zechariah 8, verses 1 through 8. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. We pray that you will make our hearts soil, Lord, in which this word and all of its implications can find root. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So I, I read a lot of weird people. <laughs> and uh, in one of the weirder people I read this week, I found something that shouldn't have hit me as quite as insightful as it did. And that is, people like to feel powerful. Think about that for a minute. People like to feel powerful. That's not wrong. They just, they just do. And the more opposition you feel, I think the more you want to feel powerful and you really hate the feeling of powerlessness. You know, this can be something as simple as just not having the right tool for the job. I mean, some of you know that feeling of being defeated by that appliance that you're trying to fix. Powerlessness, and you need a, you know, you need a, as we used to say upstate, you need a bigger blammer. But it can also be as nightmarish, this feeling of being powerless can be as nightmarish as, you know, being bullied, whether online or, you know, on a playground or something. We hate feeling powerless, and we're drawn to groups and we're drawn to movements that make us feel powerful. You know, there's something very attractive about joining in with some people and having a sense that what we're about to do now, this, we are going to have an impact. This is going to matter. This is going to make things better. That's very attractive to us. But I was reflecting on this. You know, if, you are, if we're wrong about where power lies, if we're wrong about where power lies, you will lose power by chasing it. Let me say that again. If you are wrong about where power lies, you will lose power by chasing it. Jesus said, if you live by the sword, what's he saying? If you think that's where the power is in the sword, you're going to die by the sword. If you think the chaff is the tree, Psalm 1, the wicked look powerful, and God says they're chaff, but you think the chaff is the tree, you're going you're to lose power by, by chasing power. If you think that Pontius Pilate is operating under his own power as you stand before him in judgment, there's a very different trial than the one we see with Jesus. 
you're wrong about where power, if you're wrong about where power really lies, you will lose power by chasing it. I was thinking about Genesis 3, you know, the, the story of the fall of Adam and Eve, where the serpent shows up and he's, you know, he's pointing to the tree and, and, and that God said, don't eat of it. And he essentially says, you know, Eve, here's power. You eat of this fruit, you can be like God. And I was thinking about Adam, you know, Adam's standing there with Eve and she's being tempted by the serpent. I, I've thought often about what Adam's response should have been. And, and one response Adam could have had is, is to jump in front of, you know, his wife and between her and the serpent and say, you know, Eve, you know, he's wrong. The, 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 the tree doesn't have power. But in a way, and that would have been fine to do, but it, in a way that would have almost been giving the serpent too much power. Where he could have chased the serpent all over the garden with a pitchfork, and that would have been perfectly legitimate. But again, you know, I, I was thinking this week, the other thing Adam could have done he could have just said something very simple to Eve. He could have, in the middle, you know, the, the serpent's just talking. He could have just said, you know, Eve, I had the most unbelievable idea this week for what we could do with mangoes. Come check out this recipe I've just thought of for mangoes. And he would have just disempowered the serpent, understanding that the real power, the serpent has no power. He's just talking. Let's go do what God made us to do. And what I want to talk about today is how all of this that I've just been saying applies in the very late stages of what is called, has been called, the sexual revolution. In 1936, a German psychoanalyst named Wilhelm Reich wrote a book called Sexual Revolution. Wilhelm Reich is a name you should know. And in the third edition to Sexual Revolution in 1944 or 45, he wrote a sentence that I think captures so much of the 20th and 21st centuries what's gone on. Listen to this sentence, and let's think about it together. He said, social and individual sex economy has established the fact, what he means there is individual and social sex economics have established the fact that suppression of the love life of children and adolescents, suppression of the love life of children and adolescents is the central mechanism for producing enslaved subordinates and economic serfs. Social and individual sex economy has established the fact that suppressing the love life of children and adolescents, that is the central mechanism for producing enslaved subordinates and economic serfs. Now, Reich was writing to, among other things at that time, to try to figure out how the German people ended up being so supine and passive and self-surrendering Der Führer and, you know, the Nazi regime. And he's basically saying it must be they were sexually repressed as children. That's how you produce a whole society of just, you know, control us. And I want you to notice the fear of power in Reich's statement. He's saying that if you repress sexual urges, if you repress people's children's Adolescence, sexual self-understanding and self-expression, whether the, the party doing that, the most, what, what would be the most obvious party to do that? What would be the most obvious repressor? What would be the, the, the family, the traditional family, the, the family that teaches kids you know, the so-called rights and wrongs about sexuality? Or it could be the church, or it could be society, it could be whatever. The, the result of repressing those sexual urges and that, that sexual self-understanding and expression, the result is going to be enslavement. You will produce people who can be surrendered to Nazis and actually become Nazis because they're so sexually frustrated. And so you can understand how with that fear of the power of repression, Reich could make the argument that this whole 
traditional family, church, society, whatever is repressing in this way, it's got to be ruthlessly opposed and destroyed. Sex is political. Sex is really political on this view. And it doesn't take much imagination to see how that way of thinking has spawned many, many political and ideological movements in the last hundred years. Radical feminism, the collapse of divorce laws that keep people trapped in marriages, contraception and abortion, obviously, same-sex marriage and the transgender movement more recently. It all really flows pretty naturally from this. But what's interesting is, you know, long after the culture war has been won by the sexual revolution, I mean, it's really, if you want to think of it in military terms, it's really swept the field. There's Yet still, in, this, in, in advocates for the sexual revolution, there is a very desperate search-and-destroy mission going on to find and eradicate any remaining pockets of repression. Curiously, quite paradoxically, this search-and-destroy mission to destroy repression actually has become very, very totalitarian. And you know why it's still going on, this desperate search-and-destroy mission, long after the battle has been won culturally? The reason is because the sexual revolution has been wrong about where the power lies. The sexual revolution has been wrong about where the power lies. Because for the sexual revolution to succeed, it would have to destroy not merely culture. It would have to destroy creation. It would have to find a way to destroy the way things actually are. God made them male and female and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's just how things are. You'd have to find a way to destroy that for this revolution to succeed. But now let's speak about Christians, who in my judgment have been very wrong about where the power lies. Christians in this country have been so long enamored of political and cultural power. I think many of us have lost touch, really badly lost touch, with the irrepressible power of God's creation the power of reality, just as God made it. I think we've lost confidence in that power of creation. I think we've lost imagination about it. I think we've lost skill in cultivating it. I I think we've lost the patience to work with it. And I think, perhaps most tragically, we have just lost the sheer joy of the goodness of God's creation. The way to defeat the sexual revolution is not frantically grasping at cultural power. The way to defeat the sexual revolution is to love and live created reality. To develop among us as Christians a contagious communal enthusiasm for what we just read about in this text. Cities full of old men and women, boys and girls playing in the streets. What I want to talk about today, what we should be enthusiastic about, two things I want to talk about. Pray for me as I do this. This is tough stuff to talk about now. Two things I want us to get excited about. I want us to have a passion for. And I want to talk to you younger ones at the end. Number one, what you see kind of implicit in this text and throughout the Bible is something that's glorious about creation, and that is that sex is for life. Sex is for life. You know, in the world that God made, the nature of our bodies produces certain norms in our relations. The nature of our bodies creates certain norms in our relations. This is what I mean. Long before genetics, let's think about nature for a minute, the nature of our bodies. Long before genetics, long before we you know, figured out XY chromosomes and all that, it was not at all hard, hard to figure out, just kind of looking at bodies, how nature worked. You knew that you know, our bodies, each member of our body, has a certain proper biological function. You know, my ear hears, my nose does not. If my nose tries to hear, it's, not trying, it's, 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 it's actually acting against its proper biological function. My nose is made for smelling. You know, 
I, I can use my nose for other things. I mean, if we're playing a soccer match and I decide I want to get down and push the ball around with my nose, I technically can do that, but you would say, you know, a much better thing would be to use the part of your body that actually has the proper biological function of kicking, and that is your foot and so on. Every part of our body, we could easily see, without even knowing genetics, we could see that parts of our bodies have a certain proper biological function, and there is a part of a man's body and a part of a woman's body, and this is the only part of your body that can actually create and carry life. That's what it's for. Whatever else you might do with it, that is what it is for. That part of your body, it's the only part of your body as a man or a woman that can actually create life, can create a baby. For a woman can carry and nurture that little life. That was nature, and it wasn't too hard to figure out. And, and the nature of our bodies produced certain norms in our kind of bonding and relations. It, it was not very hard to figure out in the world that God made as we studied it that if you're going to make a life together, if two people, are, if, if a man and woman are going to make a life together, it'd probably be a good idea for you guys to kind of love each other. <laughs> you know, to, 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 there ought to be a little bit of commitment here. You, you ought to care about each other because this little life's going to be born into, you know, your relationship. And, you know, you should, you, there should be something going on here that creates kind of a safe and, and loving environment for this little life. And, you know, you, didn't, you don't want this child to come out of a relationship that was based on exploitation or violence, you know, that just kind of made sense. It was normal for people to live together and kind of raise children together. That norm flowed out of the nature of the thing that was happening between their bodies. And it was also very normal, speaking of relations, it was normal that we, you know, we should care for this little life because this is ours. I mean, I love y'all's kids, but man, my kids are my kids and Sarah's kids. They're our kids. And it's just a whole different kind of bonding that flows from that. There's a, a visceral bonding when it's our baby, it's our child. And so it would have been completely abnormal. It would have been horrible even for the idea that people ought to neglect this ch child or, you know, abuse this child or abandon this child. That The norms in our relations just flowed very naturally out of the nature of our bodies. We could say it a different way. The forms of love were connected to the functions of our body. The, function, the natural biological function of the body, certain forms of love just were connected to that. It was obvious. Now, when the sexual revolution decided that we needed to reject the norms, it rejected the norms. It said those normal relations of husband, wife, parent, child, all that is repression. When it re the rejection of the norms required the conquest of nature. The rejection of the normal relationally required the conquest of the natural. Enter technology. Now, let me just say something about technology, and you guys know this. Technology can support and restore nature, can't it? If my teeth are crooked, you can straighten them. If my heart is not functioning properly, I can get my valve repaired. And so technology can support and restore nature. It can actually help proper biological function, or it can violate it. You know, people talk about this all the time with the ecosystems of our world. It is possible for human technology to destroy a planet, to destroy a physical body. I can take a piece of, I can use a tool to, to turn you into a piece of hamburger. And if you don't know what proper biological function is, then you don't actually know whether technology is restoring proper function or is actually violating and, and, and damaging a body. But there we are. So technology came in, and there was throughout the 20th century in particular a powerful, tech, te I'm going to use a very strong word here, a technological conquest, particularly of the female body. 
There was a technological conquest because we've rejected the norms, we've rejected the normal relationally. We must conquer the natural at the level of the body. And so there was a technological conquest of the female body in particular. Contraceptives were created so that after sexuality they would not be conceiving. That's artificial, it's technological. Abortion, obviously, to purge a life once conceived. Now, you know, it's strange, speaking of proper biological function, if a girl wants the pleasure of eating but wants to purge herself of the food so that she never experiences the nourishment for which the food was intended, we call this bulimia. When a girl wants to have the pleasure of sexuality but purge her body of that for which sexuality was intended, we call it the pill. It's very difficult to see how these two things are different. A pleasure without that for which this pleasurable thing was designed. An abortion destroys life once it's created. That is a technological conquest of a woman's womb. And of course, artificial reproductive technologies, not just to bypass infertility in couples who could otherwise have children if their bodies were functioning properly. So in that case, artificial reproductive technologies might actually be restoring proper function or kind of bypassing biological malfunction. That makes a certain sense. But actually, these, we went much farther with this technological thing. Artificial reproduction, not just to get around infertility in couples who, if they weren't infertile, could bear, but to make children, I use that verb advisedly, to make children for those whose proper biological function could never produce a child, say a lesbian couple or a gay couple. And I want you to think with me, again, sex is for life. I want you to think about how this emancipation from nature through technology ruptured the normalcy of, our, of many relations. I'll just mention just a few here. This emancipation from nature through technology, first of all, drove a horrible wedge between a woman's will and her body. There was a time when a woman could choose to use technology to heal her body. Now a woman had the ability to choose with her will to use technology against her body, to shut it down, to violate and destroy its proper function. Driving a wedge between that which was in her will, in her mind, in her soul, and what was actually natural and normal and healthy for her body. It drove a wedge into a woman's very being. It obviously drove an enormous wedge, this technology, between parents and children. Michael Hanby has written about this chillingly, about artificial reproduction, how that has severed the bonds between parents and children. Listen to what he says. He says, to declare technological reproduction normal is to reconceive the child not as a person but as an artifact. It denies that the child is essentially the natural fruit of a love inscribed into his parents' flesh. It denies that his being from his parents and having a lineage is deeply constitutive constitutive of his humanity or his personal identity. So it it basically denies that being from two people through whose union you were produced and having the lineage that goes back through their family lines, none of that, if you you really take artificial reproduction seriously, none of that has anything to do with who you are as a person. None of that has anything to do with what it means to be a human being. 
And, says Hanby, this technology denies that the child is his own being with inviolable dignity who cannot be manipulated and controlled since it was the process of manipulation and control that brought him into being in the first place. So a wedge between a woman and her body, a wedge between parents and children, and a wedge between couples. Sex is for life. Not anymore, thanks to technology. And now we have sexuality happening between two human beings, stripped of any generational context, any generational purpose. It is not for producing the next generation of humans. It is not to take the traditions and the good gifts of our forefathers and mothers and pass them down to generations to come. That is all gone. And what sexuality has been reduced to in the 21st century is very, very simply, it's been reduced to a treasure, a pleasure transaction. It's a simple exchange of pleasure between two people. It's about trading pleasure. It is no longer about completing each other in order to give something to the world. In a pleasure transaction, there's a very real sense in which you cannot say, you complete me. When Sarah and I bore four children, I could not do it without her. She literally physically completed me in order that we might give forth four beautiful people to the world and in order that we might build something together in which those young lives could be raised and prepared for the world. But that's not what sexuality is about. It has been completely cut off from that as a fundamental purpose. Sex now is trading pleasure. Now, here's the problem with that between couples. If our sexual interaction is purely trading pleasure, it has nothing to do with completing each other to give something to the world, to bring life into the world, then here's what it actually destroys. Any basis, real basis for faithfulness. In fact, I would go so far as to say that on this new view of sexuality that is not for life, faithfulness is stupid. Because quite honestly, if I feel good when I'm having sex with you now and I find someone later who makes me feel better, it's all about pleasure, stupid. So I'm going to go to the person who gives me more pleasure and I don't know what your problem is. This isn't about faithfulness. It's not about raising a family or building a home. It's about feeling good. And I think we actually would have to say that sexual promiscuity is completely normalized if sex is not about life. And how very different this city Old men and women sitting on their stoops, having built this city. Boys and girls playing in the streets. Generations, multiple generations, sex is for life. But there's something else. Another beautiful thing about creation, sex is for life. It's glorious. There's something else you see in the text, and it's beautiful. It's God's creation. There's power in it. Sex is for life, number one. But number two... Men and women are real. Men and women are real. Now, you might say that's a pretty obvious thing to say. No, you know it isn't obvious anymore. Men and women are real. So in the world God made, the, the nature of our bodies produced certain norms in our relations. Sex is for life. But in the world God made, there was something else. In the world God made, and it's still his, a human body carries with it a, at least a very basic gender identity. A very basic gender identity. And here it is. If you have the parts, if you have the body parts that functioning normally, functioning properly, could father a child, then you're a man. If you have the body parts that functioning normally could mother a child, you're a woman. That's the world God made. You know, we can just set aside questions about social roles, social expectations, can men wear pink, and 
you know, can girls drive tractors? I mean, you know, just set it all aside. It's not, those are not really the issue. If you've got the body parts that can father a child, you are a man. If you've got the body parts that can mother a child, you are a woman. Now, of course, the sexual revolution could have nothing to do with this. It would have to find a way to undermine that. And there was a, you know, there was a movement of radical feminism that, that went, really, went really after this. I mean, feminism is a very complex um, social phenomenon and uh, has a lot of different kind of uh, wings to it and, and, and stages of it. But th this was a very, very prominent thing in radical feminism. And, and it, the, the idea was that your body does not make you a woman. Your body doesn't make you a woman. Biology is not identity. Biology is not destiny. Your body does not make you a woman. Your body may be female, but it does not make you a woman. Being a woman, your gender identity, that's what you become. That's what is fashioned. That's what is constructed. And the really horrible thing for girls, said radical feminism, is that they have all been formed by pressure. They have they have created, they have, they have taken on a gender identity. Their understanding of what it means to be a woman has basically been forced by societal pressure. And so the idea of radical feminism was we need to completely reject all of this, these social, social norms about what a woman is, and a woman, a woman needs to be free to simply choose for herself what it means to be a woman, free from the constraints of her body. Now this, this you know, as, as, as you know, as you read the history, this created some real problems. One of them was a scientific problem. It's not quite so easy to get away from the body. It's not quite so easy to just ignore the body. Even if you ignore your genitalia, we have discovered as time has gone on that you know, if you get to the level of brain function, men and women are pretty different even there. You know, this, this fundamental difference in our genitals is something that kind of goes deeper. There's, there's women and men socialize differently. They, they often think in somewhat different ways, you know, the ways their brain function. It, you know, there's a lot of interesting research on that. So it wasn't quite so easy just to, you know, say, I'm just going to think my way into being a different sort of, you know, decide what a woman is because you kind of bring your brain chemistry with you. But then I think worse was the social problem. And I just feel so bad for, 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 for women in, in, in this system. Um, the social problem was, was this that very, very, very often what you realize when you kind of tease this out was that the, telling women, ignore your body, telling a woman, just ignore your body, that doesn't make you anything. You decide what a woman is. It has nothing to do with being a mother or, you know, your womb or, you know, all this stuff. You know, it's not, your, it's not the biology that's destiny, and it's certainly not what society says. You, you, you'd kind of do you, figure out what a woman is. The problem was that telling a woman to ignore her body, basically, when you really pushed it and, and figured out what that meant, what it really often meant was you're telling a girl she needs to act like a man. You basically need to act like a man. Because it was women who needed to make the adjustment. You need to figure out how to play all the games that men have been playing comfortably. You need to figure out how to play those games and win. What's awful about this is that a lot of women can't. They're not physically built like men. They're not physiologically built like men, yet they're expected to play men's games, as it were, exactly like men, some girls can't do it. You know, for all of the glamour of the badass princess trope, you know, look at me, I'm Ray. Whew! Captain Marvel, boom! You know. You know, that's all fine on screen. A lot of girls are not ninja warrior princess people. They're not going to be out there being the badass princess who can just, you know, like, take people down with their ninja moves. That's just not how women... Many girls just don't fit that at all. They don't want to play the boys' games. They don't care. They want to do other things. 
Many of them don't want to be a man. What if a girl actually wants to be a mom? Wants to be married? Wants to build a home? And now that's a source of, of mockery. I think Jay Budzhevsky has said this very well. He said the underlying wish is that both sexes would be men, but that some of these men would look like women. I would add, would have sex like men. Look like women, but have sex like men. Feminism, he says, has brought about a terrible fear and hatred of everything womanly. Feminism has brought about a terrible fear and hatred of everything womanly. But it's actually worse. That's the social problem, but it actually is worse. If you really push this all the way, your body has nothing to do with your gender identity. Here's the thing. If everything that distinguishes a woman from a man is just erased, that's repression. Everything that distinguishes a woman from a man or a man from a woman, this all has to be completely erased. You know what the result of that is, beloved? I hope you're all still awake because we need to think this through. If you really push that all the way, the reality is there is no such thing as a woman. Your body doesn't make you one. Your brain chemistry doesn't make you one. None of the social norms make you one. You are left with your shivering, naked little self needing to choose what you want to be. And there is no such thing called a woman that you could choose to be. It's just you choosing to be whatever you want to be. Don't call it a woman because there's no such thing as one. Everything you might point to to say, that's a woman, I want to be like that, it actually is false. It's worse. It's, oppre it's repressive. It's oppressive. There is no such thing as a woman. Womankind is a set with no features. Therefore, you cannot have the features that make you part of that set. And a womanhood and manhood simply disappear. There's no such thing as a man. There's no such thing as a woman. They're only naked, shivering little selves making choices. Now think about where that went. Enter the trans movement. This is very curious. So far from what you see in this text, the trans movement. Because for feminism, radical feminism, male and female bodies are real, but gender what it means to be a man or a woman, that's decided completely apart from the body, right? We just said that. Male and female bodies are real, but manhood and womanhood, all that actual gender identity stuff has to be decided and chosen and kind of constructed completely apart from the body. That was radical feminism. For the trans movement, gender, identifying in your psyche as a man or a woman, that's real the body needs to be decided accordingly. So for feminism, your body, you, you, know, you have a body that has nothing to do with your gender identity. The trans movement says, no, your gender identity is the thing. Your body is what needs to conform to your gender identity because that's what's real, which has led to an astonishing contradiction. I don't think most of us have thought this through in order to actually be able to point this out, but this is awful, this contradiction in the trans movement. On one hand, it says that having a certain body does not make you a man or a woman or anything else, right? Are you with me? Having a certain body doesn't make you a man, doesn't make you a woman, doesn't make you anything else. It places no constraint whatsoever on your gender identity. And yet, in the same breath, your gender identity can be such that it demands a certain body. 
Do you see the contradiction? Having this body doesn't make you a man or a woman or anything else you want to identify as, but you can have a gender identity that demands a certain body. It could be very possible you could say, I am a woman, so I must have a woman's body. But we've already said that body doesn't make you a woman. On one hand, the body is irrelevant to your identity. On the other hand, your identity can somehow have a problem with your body. That is a massive self-contradiction. What is so sickening is that contradiction to which science has no answer and philosophy has no answer because there is no answer because this is basically a rejection of how God has made things. Yet on the altar of that contradiction now, children, confused children in need of so much compassionate care and guidance, their bodies are being mutilated on the altar of that contradiction. Meanwhile, a stubborn and very beautiful reality remains that there are two kinds of humans. Unless proper biological function is disrupted, everyone is either a potential father or a potential mother. And I want to say something to the youth. The sexual revolution is now the regime. It has succeeded, it has taken power. And I'm not just talking about any election. I'm saying across Western, what used to be called Western civilization, whether you like that term or not. The sexual revolution is now the reigning ideology of our time. Which means you guys are the true revolutionaries. My prayer is that you'll be up for it. You will not be revolutionaries by seizing cultural power. You will be revolutionaries by loving creation. Do you love creation? Look at me, guys. Do you love creation? Do you love it? Do you love the nature and the norms that flow from that nature? Do you love the distinctives and the dynamics of embodied life together? Do you love your body? Do you love that God made bodies? He made us to live together with bodies? Do you love that? Are you confident in the power of that? Do you know how to wield that power as a revolutionary in our time? Let me give you three quick proposals and then I'm done. Number one, can I ask you guys, you younger ones, to be a revolutionary? Number one, please do this. Make a friend over 70 years of age and just listen to them. Just listen to them. Sit with someone who's over 70 and just talk and talk and, you know, just get them to talk. Get them to talk. Find one of these old men, find one of these old women and just sit on their stoop and just listen to them. Just listen to them. If we care about generations, we've got to start listening to the aged. Listen to the aged. Second thing, second proposal for you. Be distinctively and proudly, distinctively and proudly, the potential father or mother that you are. This is going to change your view of romance. If you're distinctively and proudly the potential father or mother you are, it's going to change your view of romantic relationships because it's not just going to be about your feelings. I get so, I don't mean this cynically, I get, I get tired of this because it's bad, for the, it's bad for, for, the, for the young people. All you ever hear when it comes to youthful romance is, is the feelings people have for each other. You're just all oh, head over heels, and it's beautiful. You know, that kind, that feelings are, are they're great. 
But real romance is not just about your feelings or your feeling feelings together. Real romance, I mean the stuff that just, it's just like at a whole other level. Real romance is about what you're going to build together. It's about producing a fruitful kingdom together. Now that's romantic. That'll keep you going when the feelings kind of come and go. One writer says, defining manhood and womanhood as the potential to be a father or mother presents one's sex as opening up a particular mode of fulfilling the creation mandate and, by implication, the Great Commission, rather than strictly in terms of how one relates to the other. You know, all this talk about how do men relate to women, how do women relate to men. Here's a better question. How do men and women together, in different ways, you know, relate to creation? Build. Be fruitful, multiply. What do they do together they couldn't do alone? And what does each of them bring to that that they could not, the other doesn't have? That's, that's a whole lot more interesting than just, you know, how do we feel about each other? How do we relate to each other? Yeah, I mean, that's an important question, but the writer goes on. This presents man and woman as facing creation and facing the future, begetting and nurturing children, whether physically or spiritually, instead of primarily as facing each other. It'll change your view of romance. It'll also change your personal development, being distinctively and proudly the potential father or mother you are. It'll change your personal development. If you hope to marry, it'll change your development because it'll, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be interested in loving kids. Start now. <laughs> Gosh, start now. You'll start loving kids. You'll start planning on kids. You'll start getting ready to be a parent to children. You'll start thinking about what that's going to demand of you if you want to marry. But you know, it'll be no different if you don't want to marry or you never marry, and many of you won't. Because you're still a potential father or mother, and there's a whole lot more, there are a whole lot more ways to be a father or mother in this world than just biologically bearing a child. And you will cultivate that basic orientation that God has given to you as a potential father or a potential mother. You will cultivate that basic orientation to the world. I come to the world as a potential father, a potential mother. And in a myriad ways that have nothing to do with bearing biological offspring, you will figure out how to become a fatherly person, a motherly person, and pass along to others so many things. It'll change your personal development. Be distinctively, proudly the potential father or mother you are. Thirdly and finally, reject the propaganda, because that's what it is. Reject the propaganda that ties your selfhood to sex that ties your selfhood to sex and therefore views chastity and celibacy as sacrifices. If you think your selfhood depends on having a lot of sex, then being chaste or being celibate is a sacrifice. But if your selfhood is not tied to having lots of sex, your, your selfhood is intact and strong and doing well, quite apart from the question of having sex then chastity and celibacy are not going to be sacrifices. They're going to be just simply part of the good life for some of you. Carl Truman puts this very pointedly. And with this, I'll close. He says, only in a world in which selves, selves are typically recognized or validated by their sexuality and their sexual fulfillment, only in that world in which these things, sexuality, sexual fulfillment, these things define who people are at the deep level, only in that world, can celibacy, refraining from sexuality, really be considered costly? Traditional, sex, cr- traditional Christian sexual morality calls for celibacy for all who are not married and chastity for all who are. It's strictly speaking no more costly or sacrificial for a single person not to have sex with someone than it is for a married person to be faithful or not to visit strip clubs and prostitutes. 
But to abstain from sex in today's world is to sacrifice true selfhood. And that is costly, but only from a perspective shaped by an uncritical and unreflective acceptance of the categories, categories of sexualized identity stemming from Sigmund Freud. And my prayer is you all be revolutionaries. God make it so. Amen. Give us courage, give us joy, give us a culture of joy in this, Lord. Help us to delight in the fact you've made sex for life and that men and women are real and to live it out for the glory of your name until Jerusalem is full of this. In Jesus we pray. Amen.